Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Ah, cats. Jump back and dust off your Cadillac. You're listening to Respect for Life with your host, Brother Leroy, on the Keys Network. Blog Talk Radio, baby. Act like you already knew. Ow! Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the first-class citizens of the world, we are thankful to the Most High that you are with us this evening. We are in the process of making contact with our guest, Brother Douglas Dietrich. Our engineers have the new number, new email that we sent just a few minutes ago, so they're hooking that up. We want to thank the Most High for blessing us with the opportunity to be with you, you to be with us doing a show that is geared to being a classroom, enabling you to get information and also ask questions as we go along. We're dealing with the military genius of black soldiers. And what we're saying is this. There are hidden facts about the pivotal role that black soldiers have played in the United States military throughout the years. And we're exploring those this evening in light of the D-Day festivities a week and a half ago, there are certain facts about the role of black soldiers in World War II. When you look at some of the movies, the movies with Tom Hanks um, and others, you don't see the black soldiers as we perform. But that's no big thing as long as we know it and we have an individual who is a military historian to share information with us tonight. We advise you to connect with your friends and relatives who may have had uh, uh, fathers and grandfathers in the military, and they may be still alive as veterans, etc., to tune in, and if they don't have internet, take this number down, 213-943-3618-213. Nine four three three six one eight. Those individuals without internet can listen by way of the telephone two one three nine four three three six one eight. You'll be listening to a military historian whom we first heard on the late night show Coast to Coast AM, and they have some very interesting guests. And maybe a year and a half ago, we heard Douglas Dietrich give a presentation on the war in the Pacific, Pearl Harbor, et cetera, and there were some startling facts that he was dropping, and uh, we made contact with him. We did a show regarding blacks in World War II as it relates to the West Coast uh, being assigned to put out fires, and we subsequently interviewed him regarding Toussaint L'Overture, very interesting dialogue we had there. And uh, do we have Douglas Dietrich on the line yet? Okay, I'm not getting a signal from my engineers. The um, 
Telephone starts yes, sir. for the phone. I'm here. Okay, Douglas Dietrich. Okay, very good. Without further ado, this brother has a lot of information. He gives it very fast in order to get in within the time limit. We're going to extend a lot of time so that he can flesh out those facts and dates, et cetera, that we need to know. Douglas Dietrich, thank you for joining us on Respect for Life, the communicators on blogtalkradio.com. Excellent. Thank you. Um, shall I speak now, sir, or are we going to commercial break, or I can get started? No, no, we're going straight ahead. Fantastic. Straight ahead I, I, I very much appreciate that. And uh, I want to emphasize the fact that, first of all, we're dealing with a very horrible, horrible period in American history. It was a period in which the African-American peoples were struggling for their own recognition, just as the United States government imposed a uh, executive order, 9066, which deprived many other American citizens of theirs who were of Asian ancestry. And at that period of time, there was a, um, a, a ACLU, and uh, the ACLU was so overwhelmed with dealing with the challenges of trying to advocate and advance the quality of life for African Americans in the United States that it could not deal, uh, or the leadership at the time felt that it could not deal with the Japanese-American issue, even though they were appealed to. So unfortunately for that period in time, we're dealing with a um, the origins of a lot of ethnic hatred that many Japanese-Americans, and therefore later Japanese, harbored towards African-Americans, that was begun at a period of time which was quite crucial for the African-Americans to earn their acceptance, just as Japanese-Americans were earning their acceptance with the 442nd unit. So we hear quite a bit about – I'm sorry, sir? Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Great. We hear quite a bit about the 442nd, and deservedly so, but sadly we hear very little about the African-American units. So what does happen is uh, they try to emphasize the positive, and that's understandable in the media, but at the same time they do a great disservice because they really do not emphasize just how truly negative it was for the African Americans in World War II. To give you an example, there was a uh, general by the name of Buckner, and General Buckner has a bay named after him to the Americans. The Japanese have a different name for it that has existed for thousands of years. This is in Okinawa, and uh, the Americans changed the name on their own records to Buckner Bay. They named this after a general who died in the battle for Okinawa. Now, what had happened was that uh, this general had demanded American troops who were black to serve as laborers to build the Pan-American Highway, which was America's own domestic version of the Burma Road that was being built in China. Now, both of these were monumental labors. These labors were the modern 20th century equivalent of building the Great Wall of China in many respects, and they cost just as many lives. If one were to do any research on the Burma-Lado Railroad, which goes all the way from basically India and Thailand and then up through the mountainous regions into Chongqing, the wartime capital of nationalist China, this road, every single ounce of concrete, every nail, 
every telephone pole, every telephone wire, all of it came from the United States. All of it was manufactured in America and built in the main, almost 100% by black laborers. And one never sees a documentary or a movie concerning this, nor the Pan-American Highway, which was built all the way from essentially San Francisco, leading up through Canada, all the way to Dutch Harbor in Alaska, going through Oregon, going through Washington. But the hardest regions were the Yukon regions, which were entirely undeveloped. And the reason that this was so crucial, because the Japanese had invaded Alaska. They had basically essentially won the Battle of Midway. The entire point of the Battle of Midway was to sacrifice the carriers so that they could establish a Japanese Imperial Marine landing force in the Aleutian Islands, which interdicted all American bombing into Japan. This forced the Americans to expand all of their energies in a quote-unquote island-hopping campaign to capture tiny bits of coral reef throughout the Pacific so that they could have landing beds and bases and airstrips for their logistical supply train for their bombers to finally reach the home island of Japan. Had the Japanese not in none of this would have happened. There would have been no campaigns in the South Pacific that cost so many thousands uh, of lives. Tens. So the end result was the Japanese invasion of Alaska resulted throughout the Pacific War in over one-third of all men and materials going up north to the Alaskan front to dislodge the Japanese invasion and it's a campaign which almost no one has heard of. Uh, military historians, of course, are aware of the Aleutians campaign. It is often referred to as the Thousand Mile War. And that is simply the Aleutian island chain itself where the combat was taking place. But in order to make that combat possible, they had to build the Trans-American Highway all the way from San Francisco, which was a far more major port than Los Angeles at the time, up into the uh, Dutch Harbor of Alaska to supply that campaign. And that took years. And what they did was they required black laborers, however reluctantly. Now, this was in the main several uh, divisions of engineers. One of them was the uh, 95th. And I was asked a question about black geniuses who point, and that's a question uh, deserving an answer. But uh, what happened was the West Point classmate of Major General LeVar Buckner basically told him in writing uh, on April of 1942, he said, I have heard that you object to having colored troops in Alaska, and we attempted to avoid sending them. That was the attitude that West Point had at the time. Now, this individual was the assistant chief of engineers charged with overseeing the construction of the military highway to Alaska. So what happened was the 93rd and the 97th engineers were assigned to the project, and his planners determined that the four white engineer regiments initially selected to work on the road could not do it unaided in a single year as designed as basically um, was the objective uh, that was outlined by the War Department. That was how urgent it was to get supplies up to Alaska. 
So in mid-April of 42, they sought and obtained a third African-American unit for the project. That was the 95th Engineers. Now, Buckner himself, his response uh, to this was that he said, I appreciate your concern of my views concerning Negro troops in Alaska. The thing which I have opposed principally has been their establishment as port troops for the unloading of transports at our docks. The very high wages offered by unskilled labor here would attract a large number of them and cause them to remain and settle after the war, with the natural result that they would interbreed with Indians and Eskimos and produce an astonishingly objectionable race of mongrels, which would be a problem here from now on. We have enough racial problems here and elsewhere already. This was an example of the high leadership which could never uh, separate their professional responsibility for defending American territory from their own personal disdain for African Americans and their vision of an integrated future. So with this kind of mentality, we take into account the uh, Alaskan uh, situation and the 95th in particular to open up with they were never given a chance to open up new sections of the highway because upon their arrival at the highway's southern terminus, they were stripped of their heavy equipment, which was turned over to the white 341st engineers. And the 95th instead was assigned to build bridges and to widen and improve the roadway. Now, this was all done by hand. <laughs> and the black regiment took great pride in its construction and in just 72 hours, uh, of the 300-foot-long Sakani Chief River Bridge, they were able to establish a bridgehead. Now, that is incredible, the dedication that these men showed, considering how handicapped they were by not only lack of equipment, but by the fact that they were facing a pathological level of racism at that period of time. So then there was also a similarly handicapped 388th Engineer Battalion, uh, which was separate from the unit I just described. This was a black unit formed from the 93rd Engineers in Louisiana, which began work on the Canadian Oil, or Conal was the name of the corporation. This was a project in June of 1942. They never obtained the equipment of a general service regiment. And they worked instead as stevedores on the Long River Supply Route, from Waterways, Alberta, to Norman Wells in the Northwest Territory. Now, all of them, because they all had white officers, the only black officers that they had were the chaplains. So basically, what we were contending with were black chaplains who often had to um, step in to uh, prevent these units from being either exploited or persecuted. Now, there was one African-American chaplain named Edward Carroll. He was a captain. He was a chaplain of the 95th, and uh, he traveled with a Victrola that he employed both at religious services and in evening relaxation. This enabled him to record some of these incidents that I was able to uncover in Department of Defense records. And Chaplain Carroll recalled that there was an African-American soldier who dated a white woman who had also received the attentions of a white officer. The officer accused the soldier of raping the woman, and Reverend Carroll had to step in 
uh, legally and provide evidence that she was a prostitute and had and this basically assisted the African American soldier in getting the charges dropped. Now there was a chaplain Smith of the 97th who was less successful in present in protecting his soldiers' interests because uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, was placed off limits to the 97th. Uh, after some white residents became aroused about the black soldiers' open acceptance of the town's restaurants, theaters, bars, and nightclubs. So there was no social outlet for these African Americans. These were essentially people who were living the same condition of chattel slavery that they had lived in the antebellum South. And they were basically being um, exploited uh, and many of them were not being paid the same wages as many other Americans in service. So we have a terrible situation that uh, becomes more evident when we speak of the port troops themselves. We were speaking probably the most uh, famous one would be the Port Chicago Mutiny. And uh, this was because you had men working with loading uh, high-risk explosives, and they were provided with no safety mechanisms, and uh, this was something that they were doing while still facing a unbelievable amount of racism by today's standards. To give you an example of this from the labor history perspective, during World War II, we basically um, enrolled about... Uh, I, I would say the military unions enrolled 1.25, about one and a quarter million new African-American workers. This was twice the pre-war number, and some white workers resisted and engaged in what were called hate strikes. So in 1943, at the height of the conflict, 25,000 Packard workers struck over the promotion of just three African-American workers. One white worker said, I'd rather see Hitler and Hirohito win than work beside a nigger. Mm. And in 1944, after orders to ignore safety standards led to an explosion that killed 320 African-American sailors at the Port Chicago area, which is right near San Francisco. Again, I know so much about this because I live in San Francisco. I was a Department of Defense librarian who uh, worked at the Presidio Military Base of San Francisco. This was the Western Defense Command Center in the Second World War, which meant it was responsible for the safety of all 17 of the Western states, as well as Hawaii. And uh, so I was dealing with these records and can speak of them with great authority and confidence. So half a hundred African-American sailors were uh, placed on trial for, mut for mutiny, essentially, when uh, they defied their white officers by refusing to load munitions without safety equipment. So it is amazing to me that African-Americans persisted in helping the war effort despite everything that was done to essentially uh, decry them as a subhuman species. Now, anyone who doubts what I am saying, who feels that African Americans were not only dehumanized as well as exploited, the best example of that would be military doctor Charles Drew. He was an African American doctor. He saved untold thousands, tens of thousands 
of lies, at the very least by inventing blood banks. And Dr. Uh, Drew invented a method to preserve blood plasma. This is the liquid that carries blood cells so that it could be stored and shipped over long distances. Now, early in the war, the British asked Drew to supervise the Blood for Britain campaign because German warplanes were bombing London and there was a shortage of blood to treat the wounded. So Drew invented blood mobiles, which were refrigerated trucks that are still in use to this day. Now, in 1941, after the success of the British program, Drew took over the American Red Cross Blood Bank in New York. He organized a massive blood drive for the United States Army and Navy. And he was ordered by the United States Military High Command to segregate the blood by race and refuse all black donors. Of course he protested and stated that that was ridiculous. Blood types don't differentiate by race. Now, Harry Drew was fired from the blood drive which was a shameful concession to the segregationists in the military itself, he later on, ironically and tragically enough, died in an automobile accident where when he was brought into a hospital, they did not give him a blood transfusion because all they had was white blood, and they honestly believed his body wouldn't accept it or take it. They believed his black body would reject white blood, so he didn't get the blood transfusion necessary to save him, and we lost one of the greatest medical minds of the 20th century. This is the level of racism that we were speaking of that African Americans were contending with. Now, we have, back to Alaska and that front for a bit, just to kind of put a closure to that, we had units uh, like... um, the um, I believe it was the 364th that had originally been stationed near Phoenix, Arizona. And in November of 1942, in the middle of a world war, they were forced to engage in a shooting match uh, because basically there was a military police unit that was preventing them from entering, again, local bars, restaurants, theaters, and facilities and uh, some of them apparently had been personally armed. There was a shootout with the military police that resulted in a soldier and a civilian killed and 12 soldiers seriously wounded. Another soldier of the 364th was killed in 1943 by a local sheriff outside of the unit's new station, Camp Van Dorn, Mississippi. So some soldiers uh, who were involved in the Phoenix Disorder were found to have tattooed on their bodies the double V signal, which was standing for victory over both the Axis powers and American racism. This was a popular slogan in the contemporary black underground press. Now, any African-American troops who were found with that symbol tattooed to their body were transferred to the triple nickels non-professional Program, Not the program of the 555, the triple nickels that was so professionally trained, but they were basically put into the cannon fodder of untrained firefighters who were parachuted in to fight forest fires with parachutes that were so small that these men, um, 90% of the time, died before they reached the ground. And that's if they were lucky. 
because otherwise they would hit a tree branch and hang there to burn alive. So this is the kind of madness that we were speaking of. Now some might ask, how many African Americans served in World War II under this level of insanity? Well, there was about uh, some people, this is the problem. When I deal with military records, I was a document destruction specialist. So one of the things that I was responsible for was destroying as many documents as possible concerning African-American military service. So I took as many notes as I could, and most of what I state can be independently researched and ultimately vetted or verified. But these records are quite scattered. They have leaked. And remember that whatever one finds on the Internet, the weakest link in a chain for information distribution is data entry. If someone does not enter that data with their fingertips through a keyboard onto the Internet, you will never find it. And most of these records concerning African-American service have never been entered into the Internet. And for that reason, when someone goes to school, they are taught a blatant lie, so bold as to bring tears to one's eyes. They will be told that about one-fourth of one percent of African-American soldiers died in World War II, meaning that they are told that for all these African-American soldiers, they will say that they're basically all doing these scut jobs, that uh, because they're all behind the lines, far away from danger, that they would uh, essentially not be exposed to enemy fire. Now, the reason that this is so blatantly tragic is because these men were facing dangers that were far worse, statistically, than the men at the front lines were facing. Now, to give you an example of how bad it was in Alaska, we have already covered various aspects of the tragedy of racism these men were facing. The fact that they did not have black officers until, basically, finally, they uh, mutinied and had enough violent incidents where no white officer would lead them because the white officers were afraid for their lives. That's what led to the promotion of some blacks to black officer status. Until that point in time, on the American front of World War II, the majority of African-American units were functionally led by their chaplains, who were African-American. Now, if you go to the Pacific theater of war, where we have so many labor units, we are speaking of people who were the African-American GIs. They were assigned to segregated labor battalions, and they were shipped to South Asia. Most of this was around the 1943 period, and they endured unspeakable hardships while sailing around the globe. The conditions of the merchant tramp steamers, which were converted to ship African-American labor to separate them from white sailors and white engineers, were so terrible that many of them did not make it to Asia alive. This is similar to the Chattel slavery of shipping African-Americans from the homeland of the African continent to America to serve as slaves, which is exactly what these men served as when they reached Asia. 
Thousands of black soldiers were dispatched to build the Lado Road. This was a highway meant to appease China's dictator, Chiang Kai-shek. His republic is the republic which I was born into when it had relocated itself, or after it had relocated and reestablished itself onto the island of Taiwan. At that period of time, its wartime capital was in Chongqing. Now, we had these thickly forested mountains of northeast India, and the African Americans were assigned to build a road leading from these forested mountains of North India into Chongqing, the mountainous region where Chiang Kai-shek had built his final holdfast to withstand Japanese assault. Now, these African Americans had to cross through tiger-infested mountains and basically build a road while beset by monsoons, malaria, insects that chewed men's flesh to pulp, and the brutality was made worse by white supervisors, most of whom were transferred from the Deep South, who actually referred to them as boy, nigger, and often punished them by flogging. So we're talking about African Americans existing in the 20th century during the Second World War, where Americans are supposedly fighting for freedom, living in chattel slavery conditions, where they slept on the open mud underneath tents that they established themselves while their white officers slept in wooden shacks that they built for them that were built up on stilts so that the insects couldn't crawl up the stilts to chew the officers to pits at night like they did the black soldiers. So there was one man in particular, a man named Herman Perry, who was the long-time descendant of an African-American steward who had served Commodore Perry, the man who in 1853 started all of this by threatening Japan with invasion if they didn't open their doors to American dominance of their trade and exchange. Now, this African-American, Herman Perry, couldn't take the jungle's brutality, the racist treatment, and at one point he began to find solace in opium and marijuana, and finally, on March 5th of 1944, he broke down. And when an American white officer tied him to a post and began to flog him, he broke free, took the officer's gun, and killed him. This led to the greatest manhunt ever conducted by the United States Army in its entire history. Now, there was almost no executions of white troops or any troops in World War II that is ever spoken of. Now, with the white troops, this is because almost none of them were executed. Indeed, as far as I can ascertain, unless somebody can prove otherwise, as a Department of Defense research librarian, I know of only one white soldier that was executed. His name was Private Slovak. And Private Slovak, they made an entire movie about him. Now, with Herman Perry, we have a man who deserves an entire miniseries because the greatest manhunt in the history of the U.S. Army was instigated to find him when he escaped into the Indo-Burmese wilderness off of death row. He basically broke away from the U.S. military brig's death row for killing a white officer. He went into the Indo-Burmese jungle, one of the planet's most hostile wildernesses, 
And while the military police were combing the brothels of Calcutta, Perry tracked through all this endless jungle, he stumbled upon a village of headhunters festooned with polished human skulls. And it was here amid a tribe of elaborately tattooed uh, headhunters that he married the chief's 14-year-old daughter. And this individual was finally tracked down. If you can imagine, during a Second World War, that the U.S. Army diverted entire units to find this African-American, and they finally captured him on March 15th of 1945, days before the cessation of proactive hostilities in the Pacific Theater of War, and they hung him. And nothing has ever been spoken of this man in public media. And to the African Americans on the Lado Road, he was known as the Jungle King. He was a folk hero. And he's what led many African Americans into conscientious objection because his manhunt was so huge there were wanted signs for him with his face plastered all over Asia. From China into India, there was no way they could keep his story hidden from the African Americans back home. So we have a situation where many African Americans became conscientious objectors, and as a result, the Office of War Information under Elmer H. Davis, the most evil man that you've never heard of, a radio newscaster who was put in charge of information suppression, this man basically ordered a a survey to be conducted using black interviewers to interview African Americans throughout particularly Harlem, many other black neighborhoods in uh, the United States, but particularly New York City, African American neighborhoods, and find out what their opinion was on the war. And what happened was the Office of War Information found that there was no lunatic fringe of protest or conscientious objection amongst African Americans, but rather that the overwhelming majority of low-income African Americans felt that they would be no worse off under a Japanese victory or even a National Socialist or Nazi victory than they were under the current establishment as it stood in white-dominated America. Only the middle class... uh, higher-income African-Americans who had managed to establish a more normalized lifestyle were essentially more accepting of the American status quo. So we have a situation now. Let's turn to the military. We've covered some of the tragedy of labor in the African-American story in World War II. One of these days, uh, if we have time today, I'll certainly go more into the conscientious objection, which uh, merges. Uh, seamlessly uh, with the Triple Nichols history and the 555th uh, Paratroop Battalion, which was the first all-black paratroopers unit and the only military firefighters ever to be assembled, uh, probably in the history of mankind. And well, these be, uh, yes. Brother Dietrich, uh, let's do this. Um, this is a fascinating classroom. We, we, we're in the the university, everybody would be taking two notepads of notes. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Blog Talk Radio, the Keys 107 Network. The program is Respect for Life, the uh, sister, the brother of the communicator program that we do on Saturdays. Our guest online is Douglas Dietrich. He's a military historian, as you can hear. You'll have an opportunity to ask some questions uh, shortly. We are uh, giving him all the time he needs to run the facts that we need to know about. Once again, the telephone number to call in with your questions is 213-943-3618. 213-943-3618. We'll go to questions after we hit these commercials, and that gives you a chance to put your questions together. We have more data to cover with Brother Dietrich, and we want to get in as much information as possible. As you can hear, these are facts that you have not been exposed to before. Telephone number 213-943-3618. You can also share this number with folks who are uh, without Internet. They can call this this number, 213-943-3618, and listen by way of the phone. Hit one on your telephone keypad that lets us know that you have a question. So stay tuned. We'll be right black after these messages. We'll be right black with Brother Douglas Dietrich, military historian. Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC, is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet. Now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. Moon 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories, and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cuffed shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, bath accessories, and inspirational music imported from Africa, India, and Asia, as well as jewelry and accessories. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back. 213-943-3618. Put you online to speak with Brother Douglas Dietrich, military historian. Once again, this is the Keys 107 Network, a network dedicated to bringing you information that you do not tend to get anywhere else. Very creative programming on this network. Tonight we are Respect for Life, and on Saturday night, 
I'm back with you on the communicators at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We have a caller calling in from California. Caller, you're on the air. Thank you for your patience. Yes, I don't know about the California part. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> no problem. Yeah. We, we um, enjoyed you just the same. Dietrich, Go ahead. Uh, Brother Dietrich, this is fascinating. Even as I was trying to take a snooze here, I, I had to get up and answer my three-part question, and I'll listen over the air. First of all, I'd like you to flesh out some of these things because it goes by so fast. So, for example, you ran by some of the junctures or interspecies or pit stop of the Burma Road. I'd like to hear more about those pit stops and how that construction came together, as you can. I'd also like to know more about the boats. Why were the boats so dehumanizing and so deadly to the African descendant um, troops? And uh, lastly, I'd like to know, I'd like you to flesh out more about Dr. Charles Drew, what you know, where he went to school, some timeline, when he invented the plasma, if you could go into what's the difference between the plasma and the actual blood donation somebody gives, and what hospital and what time frame when he died by being denied blood, thinking that it was it, it was uh, uh, different as a black person. And thank you so much for your work. Thank you, ma'am. I very much appreciate all of your questions. And, of course, they uh, probably demand uh, a, a book for each one of them. To begin with, uh, Dr. Charles Drew, probably the best uh, reference that I can um, give out that would be publicly accessible, something that you could actually find and purchase, would be a book called The Human Stain. I believe it's out of print, and one would have to find it either on eBay or Amazon.com as used if one uses the Internet, or simply take the title down, The Human Stain, and look for it in a public library to uh, borrow it. But that is the book that outlines a uh, good deal about his death, the manner in which he died and how he was denied blood. Now, uh, obviously, this happened after the war. I believe it was in the 1950s. And uh, my mind is like a fishbowl. There's only so many marbles that can fit inside of it before it cracks. And mine cracked, and all the marbles fell out a long time ago. So in terms of some of the details that you're asking about the Lado Road, they, uh, I look at it pretty much from a strategic perspective. Uh, when I take a look at the sufferings that were endured by African-American troops, I look at it from a basically how this affected them en masse. Uh, and so there's not too much I can give you in terms of details that comes to mind consciously. But my brain is like an attic, and every once in a while, uh, one of the beams will collapse and some sunlight will shine on some long-forgotten corner. But in the meantime, the ships were extremely deadly to African Americans because of several reasons. One, these were all very con old, converted rust buckets. And these were like tramp steamers that had been converted into transports that were deemed unsafe to carry uh, human passengers. So they shoved all of the black troops in them uh, as basically subhuman passengers and sent them across the Pacific pretty much unescorted. They didn't have security escort from gunships 
or patrols, and therefore were easy to sink. So that was made them very similar to the prison hulks that the Japanese used to carry uh, white prisoners of war in during the war. And as a result, many white Americans died because these were unescorted prison hulks the Japanese were using to transport them from island to island. And uh, the Americans would sink them uh, not knowing and perhaps even not caring that there were white Americans that were inside of these prison hulks uh, as prisoners of war. So this was the hell of the situation in war. But in the African-American case, it's uh, infinitely more tragic because this endangerment is being uh, posed by their own nation-state which they served. And this is one reason why you had phenomena such as the Port Chicago mutiny and, uh, and, and ultimately many conscientious objectors in the African-American community that are never spoken of and whose story is just as important as the African-Americans who died so gallantly in World War II. Now, if we have, uh, if, unless we have another caller, uh, Brother Leroy, one of the things I'd like to do now is to explain the difference between what they tell you about the African-Americans who died in combat and what the reality was. Oh, oh your point. We have another caller. And uh, Brother Anthony, your question. Yes, how you doing, uh, Mr. Dietrich? Thank you, for Brother Leroy, for uh, letting me get in on your time. I have uh, an extensive history with people in my family and people that I've been close to that have come through the military. Um, some of them were discharged with honor, some without honor, but it seems like every one of them have some sort of mental glitch that seems to be very consistent throughout the people that I have gotten a chance to interact with. Is there anything that you can say about what happens to them during that period of time when they're enlisted in the military that affects them in the manner that it does, and why are they not receiving the proper counseling and the type of support that it takes for someone to transition out of that into having a regular and productive life? Thank you, Brother Brother Anthony, Brother Anthony before yes. you leave, what theater of war were they involved in? Um, was all different types of wars. Was it Vietnam? Was that, huh? Going back from... Um, some of my grandfather's friends who were involved in World War II and all the way up to just right now, um, you know, being involved in Afghanistan, some of the some of my peers and friends, some of the younger guys that I have been around and interacted with, they all have this same inability to transition back into regular society. Right, right. That is, you know, really, thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate your bringing that up. Again, that's something that requires a program in and of itself to contend with because what you're dealing with is not only post-traumatic stress disorder that is caused by combat situations. There is also, even for men who do not, quote, unquote, see combat, uh, just being in a prison is going to lead to that mental uh, glitch, and that's exactly what the military system is. People in the United States have really been given this impression that we've got this professional military that is um, uh, citizen soldiers, they're volunteers, and in a very real sense, nothing could be further from the truth because many of these people 
who are in the lower income levels of the military, who are enlisted men. These enlisted men basically um, sometimes spend generations in the military, just as you have families that spend generations on welfare, in housing projects. I grew up in absolute poverty, bone-grinding poverty, in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. And I have been all over the world in war zones, and I can tell you there's no place that I've ever been to, even in the middle of a war zone, that has been worse to me than San Francisco's Tenderloin District. It's simply the overwhelming depression, the overwhelming oppression. Uh, when I grew up in San Francisco, we were in the middle of the zebra killings campaign in which certain African Americans were inspired by the Mau Mau of Southern Africa to basically go out and terrorize the community as a political statement uh, by killing random Caucasians. So at that period in time, I grew up when we had policemen going through the Tenderloin area of San Francisco shouting with bullhorns, if you can believe this, blacks do not congregate, blacks do not congregate. Any time they saw a gathering of African Americans, they would be ordered to disassemble. And the reason they would be ordered to dissemble was because they were so afraid of a repetition of the Watts riots. And, of course, there were many other incidents of African-American massacre where Caucasians had massacred like an entire neighborhood of African-Americans uh, in, I believe it was Chicago. And I'll have to ask a friend of mine who knows much more about that. But there, uh, that involved the MOVE group, M-O-V-E, for those who are interested in looking that group up. They basically lived in a lot of abandoned houses or project sites that uh, they were living in, and um, the um, local authorities somehow got the, basically the permission to firebomb the place. Well, that, and, that's what Brother Dietrich. Thank you. Thank you. That's M-O-V-E that was in Philadelphia, they had their own home, and uh, they had a particular lifestyle, and the mayor at that time was a black mayor, and uh, basically at that at a particular point in time, they say he signed off on it, but it's felt that he didn't, but he went along with it. Uh, but that was the move, the move, right. move which still exists today, and they're... they're <laughs> Anyway, they they were accused of killing a policeman, and um, the the evidence points to police bullets killing that individual. But they're in jail. Some of them are in jail for that. But the the home was bombed. It definitely was bombed. But but yeah. uh, continue with the, your situation in in San Francisco. Yes, sir. And uh, so, no, I, I think what I've said about San Francisco puts it into perspective. The uh, point that I was trying to make for Anthony was that because so many of the enlisted men uh, in the military come from these environments, they already come from a very depressed or oppressed psyche. They enter an environment which further depresses it, further oppresses it, by consistently reinforcing this feeling of worthlessness. The military basically is like a combination of a prison, a welfare state, and a religious cult without the redemption of a theology of salvation. 
basically what the military does is they tell you how worthless you are repeatedly, and the men come to believe it, and the women who serve in the military. And as a result, it is impossible for them to re-socialize because, like in a prison, once you become adapted to that lifestyle, it is almost impossible for someone from a prison to re-socialize without an enormous effort, without a personal commitment to rehabilitation. Uh, because once you get out of the military, you're out of an environment where someone is giving you orders, where someone is constantly telling you what to do. Uh, you definitely have, to put it mildly, a mental glitch, as Anthony stated. Now, uh, to put this into perspective as to how terrible this is for the African Americans in particular, at least with the modern military, because they accept only volunteers, they had to uh, create a cessation of the draft. In the Vietnam War, what you had was a draft where, of course, they drafted poor whites, and poor African Americans in the main. It was basically a black and white nation, and they brought them over to Vietnam. And the largest prison riots in the history of the United States did not take place in the United States. They took place at LBJ, Long Bin Jail, in Saigon, which they called LBJ after the president of that period of time, Baines Johnson. And what happened was that all these African-Americans and Caucasian-Americans were stuck in a military brig in Saigon, and they went at each other with pen knives and uh, anything they could find, can openers, and uh, resulted in the death of maybe uh, tens or scores of people. And the injury, uh, if I looked at my records correctly, uh, in the Department of Defense of hundreds of people. So this is the situation overseas in Vietnam at that time where you get all these people in prison. And it's very difficult to get in prison uh, at that time. You're in the middle of a major conflict. They're not going to send you to prison for, say, for instance, uh, disrespect or failure to salute. They needed too many men in the field. You had to do something serious. You had to be like trying to frag an officer, like trying to kill an officer. That go alone should show you all of the fragging that was going on for that many men to be in prison <laughs> during the Vietnam conflict. You also had some of the largest race riots in American history take place on aircraft carriers. And so this was – an aircraft carrier is, again, not like today's aircraft carriers, which are like floating hotels, albeit um, very neurotic ones. Uh, in those days, they were like floating prisons, and uh, we're talking about the Vietnam War era. And uh, I personally interviewed on my own radio program, uh, Critical Omissions and uh, um, Saturday Night Firing Lines. I have them on Saturday and Tuesday nights on Revolution Radio, which someone can access if they would like through digital broadcasting, which would be the address of freedomslips.com, www.freedomslips.com. Dot com from freedom's lips to your ears. So if someone were to listen to that on Saturday or Tuesday nights, I'm on 10 to midnight uh, Eastern time. And uh, I once interviewed, uh, twice I interviewed a young lady whose uh, father had been on board one of those aircraft carriers where there was this enormous uh, prison, uh, excuse me, uh, aircraft race riot. It was a race riot on an aircraft carrier. So what we have now is I'll, I'll return, unless we have another caller, to the combat deaths in reality as opposed to what they teach you in school concerning African Americans. Okay, go straight ahead, Steve Douglas. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you for those questions. And uh, so what they will tell you 
that is that 16 million men served in World War II, that 1.2 million were blacks. Uh, they don't tell you about the 1.25 million that were in military unions, which was a phenomena of the Second World War under the Roosevelt administration. And they will tell you, of course, officially that the total dead from World War II was about 310,979 Americans or recognized U.S. citizens. And they will tell you that about 708 of those were black which is about 0.25%, meaning one-fourth of 1%. Now, according to a statistical reference to casualty and other figures, casualties are injuries and fatalities are deaths. So when you take a look at warfare and armed conflicts, which is this uh, publicly accessible statistical reference, They'll say that during World War II, again, 1.2 million African-Americans served in the U.S. Armed Forces, 708 killed in combat. This is an absolute lie. Uh, as someone who was uh, tasked and ordered to destroy military records, I can tell you uh, flat out it was a lie. Now, um, they would tell you as well that many African-American losses would have been black stewards on Navy vessels that were sunk, and they'll say as kind of an afterthought or a footnote, well, maybe a few of them were shot down who were the Tuskegee Airmen. Now, to put this into perspective for you, the Tuskegee Airmen was a unit promoted by Eleanor Roosevelt as a pet project to prove that her husband was not a racist. Now, the only book that was readily accessible to the public as a mass market paperback, an actual pocket book, as they used to call them in those days, uh, that was about the Tuskegee Airmen, was titled Eleanor Roosevelt's Niggers. And this was a book that was published in the 1970s, I believe, 60s or 70s, and it still had that title. Uh, in terms of a mass market release. And people can look this up. I'm sure that book is – is people can find it on eBay or uh, used Amazon, etc., or even in a library. Oh. Now, this is why Theodore Bilbo, who was a senator who was basically the man who ran Washington, D.C., some would say to the ground, uh, he was a man who was very much for the deportation of all African-Americans – back to Africa with Eleanor Roosevelt as their queen. Mm. And Theodore Bilbo actually stated this in writing mm. because mm. of this pet Tuskegee Airmen project. Now, in terms of the Tuskegee Airmen, of course, these were fighters, uh, pilots of fighter planes, who were the best young men that the colored race had to offer at that time in the United States, highly trained and strictly disciplined. They were rivaled only by the triple nickels or the 555 uh, in terms of military elan and, tr and professionalism. And they were widely known for never having one of their escorted bombers shot down by another plane. And, of course, because these bombers were killing German civilians, women, children, elderly people, uh, infants in the cribs, the Germans were trying very hard to shoot these bombers down as much as they could. And uh, so the Tuskegee Airmen, in that sense, achieved an incredible uh, protection record. And, of course, there were African-Americans who helped patent smash through France and Belgium and come to the aid 
of the 100% white 101st Airborne and 82nd Airborne. This is very similar to the Japanese Americans who were used as cannon fodder to break through uh, any German uh, surrounded units such as the National Guard unit from Texas that the Japanese had rescued. And uh, throughout all this period of time, many of these African-American deaths in combat were being listed as, oh, he died by accident, or oh, he died uh, while serving a white officer and a mortar hit their tent. Uh, so that's why they wouldn't have to pass out any medals to black troopers posthumously. So when you take a look at the reality of it, there was some information that was published in the Portsmouth Herald on May 23rd of 2004, and they pointed out the fact that of the 16.1 million U.S. Armed Services men uh, who served in World War II, 1 million black troops uh, basically amounted to 6.2% of that number, and of those about 292,000 U.S. military killed in battle. They were rounding this down. All of these figures are highly differentiated because the records from World War II have been so destroyed by the Office of War Information by document destruction specialists like myself with the Department of Defense, and the government has pretty much denied you any real history of uh, World War II. Now, we've got 114,000 quote-unquote, other World War II U.S. deaths in war, accidents, illness, etc. Now, we know at least, at least 142,000 black troops were killed, and these numbers indicate that a very large percentage of those that died in World War II were black, which leads us, when we take a look at the real numbers that I was forced to destroy records and documentation of, 35 to 49 percent. That means almost half of all the troops who died in World War II were black. Now, think of the difference of what I'm telling you with what they tell you. They will tell you that, oh, the U.S. military in World War II was segregated, the vast majority of blacks in uniform were laborers that avoided combat. They're not going to tell you they were dying of tiger attacks, malaria, uh, and being shot by their own officers in the back uh, for not obeying their orders as an example to the rest of the troops so that they would work harder. All these construction uh, battalions who were in the rear area camp and roads were suffering far worse than many of the white troops on the front in combat action. Now, they explain the fact that these men never went through an infantry basic course, that the only thing they were carrying were a shovel and a pickaxe, and they don't tell you that the enemy did not differentiate between them and the white men who went through military training and were carrying a weapon. So they will tell you the United States Marine Corps had zero blacks in it, which is a lie, as did the United States Army Air Corps, except for one or two fighter units with 20 pilots each. They'll bring up that, and again, that's a lie. So they'll basically say that um, blacks in the United States Navy were only allowed three jobs, cooks, messmen, laundry workers, and they won't tell you how many of them died every time a ship sank. So what we're left with is what they call footnotes in history. They'll tell you, oh, there's a couple of black tank destroyer units, part of Patton's Third Army, maybe 1,500 in total. There were no black paratroops, which, of course, was an outright lie. And uh, they'll bring up a fact that the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions were 100% white men. They don't bother to tell you, of course, that the black uh, tank units had to break through to rescue them. 
and uh, they'll break they'll bring out the one black parachute regiment, the five five five, and they won't tell you that they were the most important unit of the war because they were fighting on the American front against Japanese incendiary bombs that were burning America's forests to the ground so that the Japanese could map the wind patterns so the Japanese could conduct a biological attack. So we have a situation. Yeah. I'm sorry, uh, Douglas Dietrich. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest online is historian, military historian, Douglas Dietrich. And we're talking about primarily about blacks in World War II, and uh, we may very well, well, we touched on some other areas, Vietnam for a minute. But uh, go back to the black um, tank battalions breaking through and saving the 82nd Airborne. Um, uh, expand on that for us. I wish I could. Uh, I know the fact that it happened. I don't have the notes oh. in front of me about the operational details. But what I can okay. tell you is that the largest U.S. combat infantry division serving in Europe was the 92nd Negro Infantry Division. And they fought as soldiers against the tough Nazi or Nazi veterans that faced them there. And there was the 93rd Negro Infantry Division that fought in the Pacific. And these were Marines who went through Marine Corps training but were not acknowledged as Marines. Mm. So they were relegated to doing the most dangerous work which was clearing out bypassed Japanese positions, meaning mm. that the white Marines would advance without taking the positions and leave the blacks behind the lines to do the dirty work. That way the whites could claim that they were advancing at pace with no resistance. Mm. So they would just bypass many Japanese positions, and the Japanese would tear the hell out of the logistical and quartermaster units in the back to prevent them from getting supplies and the blacks were responsible for making sure that the supplies, the coffee and the donuts, kept reaching the white marines at the front. Mm. Now, the blacks also had combat roles in more than just a few segregated combat units. They were in segregated tank battalions, tank destroyer units, field artillery battalions, all of which fought in the Battle of the Bulge through to Germany. So the 761st Black Tank Battalion was the most famous amongst them because... They, that was the one that basically made the breakthrough to save the all-white airborne units. So that much I can say about it. Anyone fully aware of all of the black combat units serving in northwestern Europe knows that the idea of just 1,500 black combat roles is highly underestimated and disingenuous, to, to say the least. And um, all of the segregation barriers had to break down due to combat by the end of 1944, due to lack of replacements available in white units in Northwest Europe. So gradually, white battalions were being integrated first with all black companies, and then some white companies were taking in all black platoons. Platoons, excuse me. Uh, and these were uh, black soldiers who fought the National Socialist forces into Germany itself. And um, basically, they were fighting not only their own battle, but the fact that what they were doing would never be remembered. Mm. And it's important to remember that the presidential executive order, which removed racist segregation policies on paper in United States Armed Forces, did not take place until 1948. Now, mm. remember, we were still legally at war at the time, mm. 
at that point in time, Japan and America were still legally at war until the Treaty of San Francisco was signed in 1951 at the Presidio military base where I worked, and it did not go into effect until August 28th of 1952. So until that point in time, the United States and Japan were legally at war. The United States and the Third Reich are still legally at war. Just like the nation I was born in, Taiwan, where the Republic of China reestablished itself, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, is still legally at war with mainland China. So, too, the Third Reich's government in exile is still at war with the United States. It is for this reason that you are still under daylight savings, which is known as wartime. That was instituted by President Roosevelt. It is for this reason that you still are taxed with federal taxes on your phone bills. Because in World War II, we had ladies who would directly physically connect cables into sockets to connect calls. And to prevent people from overloading their responsibilities, they instituted a wartime telephone tax. That wartime telephone tax is still in effect. You just look on your phone bill under your taxes marked federal. We are still legally at war with the Third Reich in exile. I could bring up many other examples but the important thing, uh, back to the African-American subject, that we also had, of course, crucial engineer, transport, particularly the Red Ball Express's participation. We had the 666, the, 6600, the 666 quartermaster truck convoy in Arnhem's campaign, known as Hell's Highway, where all of these Red Ballers are uh, African-American truck drivers and uh, their um, truck loaders, were constantly coming under fire and constantly being killed, and they were unarmed, and they constantly made supplies reach the front. And, of course, we have uh, basically uh, alluded to uh, the various other battalions. Now, uh, Roosevelt, um, I'm trying to think about the Navy and sub-crews. I do know that there were some African Americans involved there, and to put forth the naval perspective of what Americans used to refer to as blackjacks or African American sailors, there were barrage balloon units which landed at Omaha Beach on D-Day in the first wave of assaults. And this was the 320th Colored Barrage Balloon Company. Now, this is so important because in Saving Private Ryan or other World War II movies where they show D-Day, they never show blacks jumping off those amphibious transports. So some movie needs to show ultimately the barrage balloon units uh, and the 320th colored barrage balloon company in particular that landed in that first wave of assaults. And, of course, we had Coast Guard anti-aircraft units, a uh, black woman who served in the famous uh, CORPS, or Corps of World War II, as well as in the waves, the WACs the SPARS, various other auxiliary organizations, and I'm sure there's many other that I'm forgetting to name, but that gives you just a perspective on the American side. Now, I'm not even talking of the blacks who served in the British and Canadian non-segregated units of World War II, or the Commonwealth blacks who were from British colonies who fought in the Battle of Britain and in the Royal Air Force. And there was at least, that I know of, 160,000, there had to be more, black Commonwealth Africans, meaning actual people from the African continent who were fighting in the Far East, amongst which were several fighting black African divisions. And these were actual servicemen from the African continent itself. 
Mm. So it's important to remember that um, when you read National Geographic, I'm appalled when I see statements from that magazine, which is supposed to be educational, seeing things like saying things like black soldiers were generally restricted from combat. But they do at least admit the fact that uh, the major breakthrough came, and this is important, and they, National Geographic deserves credit for it. It's historically accurate. One major breakthrough came during the Battle of the Bulge in late 1944. And what happened at that time was the U.S. military high command went into total meltdown and panic. The Battle of the Bulge is the most studied military operation in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO High Command, uh, it was until the collapse of the Soviet Union. They would war game the Battle of the Bulge over and over again, and this was because Adolf Hitler was so brilliant in his tactics that he melted down the U.S. High Command into thinking that Stalin had switched sides. The way that Adolf Hitler did this was he took General Vlazov, who was a Russian defector who was anti-Stalinist, what was known as a national Soviet or national Bolshevik, meaning that he was communist, but he was antithetical to Joseph Stalin's cult of personality. He brought with him many thousands of Russian troops. Adolf Hitler accumulated many more volunteers from Belarus, Ukraine, various other Russian nationalities. He took these Slavic peoples and soldiers, and he transferred them to what the Germans referred to as Zeeland, or what we know as Nederland, or Holland. And during the Battle of the Bulge, he utilized these Russian forces using Soviet indoctrinated tactics. So they attacked the Americans just the, in the same manner that the Soviets were attacking the Germans on the Eastern Front. That was the closest <clears throat> excuse me, that the Americans ever got to suffering a Soviet-style multi-echelon attack in Western Europe. So along with the German militias, along with the German panzer units, Adolf Hitler reorganized all of that, the German and the Russian volunteers, along Soviet lines. And so when he attacked the Americans and they heard these Russian voices over German radio transmissions, they were convinced Stalin had switched sides and they were well and truly screwed. They went into a total meltdown, a total panic, and basically General Dwight D. Eisenhower temporarily desegregated the army, calling for urgent assistance from all the blacks he could find, and that's when over 2,000 black soldiers volunteered to fight and helped to turn the Battle of the Bulge, and that never makes it into the movies. All right, just you got you got to play that out for us. 2,000 black soldiers volunteered. Where, where did they come from? They came from various where? They came from all of the units in northwestern Europe, just from everywhere, from transport units. Uh, some of them were cooks. Some of them were corpsmen, meaning that they were military medics. Uh, they all volunteered to go into action. And so we've got a situation in which they were just calling on anybody and anyone who was available, and the majority of people that were available and who wanted to fight were African Americans. Okay, and, and again, what difference yeah. did they make? Are you talking about just being numeric, adding to the numbers? Was there fighting um, spirit? Was there, you know, the, what? The, 
the records that I dealt with and uh, destroyed, and I'm sure people can still find evidence of the reality of what I'm describing out there. If you look for it, you will find it. The records that I was contending with said that they were decisive in turning the Battle of the Bulge because of the fact that they put their heart and soul into it and basically fought to the death to prove that they were something more than dogs. Wow. And that was what I saw. And Americans, of course, won't say any of that. They'll uh, basically present in their histories that, oh, the weather lifted, and we were able to uh, get the air supply in, the air support, and then bomb the Germans. So that's what you see in Saving Private Ryan. At the end of that film, Saving Private Ryan, they're faced with a German tank, and then suddenly an American plane blows it up, and they put it all on air support. You know, that's as opposed to, you don't see black troops coming in to rescue Private Ryan's ass at the end of that film. No. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our our guest online is Brother Douglas Dietrich, military historian, and the telephone number is 213-943-3618. Remember, this is a classroom where you ask questions, the more information you get, the more clarity comes to the discussion, 213-943-3618. And you hit one on your telephone keypad that lets us know that you indeed have a question. I want to move uh, uh, to another area, and that is uh, black military uh, figures who are studied at West Point. What, if anything, do you know about that? I apologize. I, I don't know anything about that because uh, I, it, West Point was like an entirely different world unto itself. West Point is a a power elite kind of university. It's like the military version of uh, the Skull and Bones Club. So the men who graduate from West Point are known as ring wrappers because they basically wear rings that are very heavy brass rings that show that they had graduated from West Point. They turn those rings upside down so that the heavy part of the ring is beneath the finger as opposed to above. And this way they attract attention whenever they're in a room by slapping the table very hard and making a very loud noise with that slapping ring sound. It sounds like a miniature judge's gavel going off. That's why they're known as ring wrappers. But um, to give, rather than paying attention to West Point, I'm sure that it's full of foibles. I, I know more about West Point in other areas, such as the child molestation scandal, but to go back to the African-American uh, situation, it's important to remember that even what they show you in films is going to be so limited that they do not show, say, for instance, the true heroism or accomplishments of units such as the Tuskegee Airmen. In 1944, of course, everyone knows they began flying with white pilots in the European theater, successfully running bombing missions. By that I mean escorting the bombers. They also became the only United States unit ever to sink a German destroyer. If you can imagine fighter planes doing that, somehow that didn't make it into the films, and that was a spectacular accomplishment. Now, African-American women, of course, also fought to serve in the war effort as nurses. And despite the early protests that black nurses treating white soldiers would not be appropriate, the War Department relented, and the first group of African-American nurses in the Army Nurse Corps arrived in England in 1944. So uh, there is even an account of a black unit that I believe either served in Saipan or Tarawa and pretty much fought to the death. I believe at least nine of them got killed. 
So if we were to try and find out how many blacks died in uh, World War II, someone will have to ultimately independently look up the black unit histories, see if they can pull up fatality lists. And remember, a fatality is a death, a casualty is an injury. And oftentimes in civilian histories, these are confused, conflated, or even uh, purposefully uh, basically distorted so that they will claim that a fatality is a casualty. Say, for instance, an African-American soldier gets injured on the front, gets taken to behind the lines, or even flown back home, and then dies. Then he's right. not counted as a death. They would just mm. say, oh, he was injured on the field of battle. But they won't say that he died. So, uh, Douglas, um, Douglas uh, just a point regarding the Tuskegee Airmen. In the, in the film, the most recent film that was done, there is the sinking of the boat, and okay. they they have the, the portrayal is uh, a lone wolf uh, flyer. And when I say you know he he was doing his own thing, he breaks off from from the formation as they're going back to the air base. He breaks off from this formation and he undertakes the attack on a German boat. Um, the the significance of that is mentioned briefly but not as you're positioning it to um, to our attention now but um, thank you uh that's in the last one that was done the guy that created star wars or whatever the guy from England. george lucas thank yeah, you no george i didn't see the film i, I didn't yeah. see the film or otherwise i would have brought that up because what i'm assuming that he did was that he probably portrayed it uh, did, did they portray the man in the film being disciplined for, um, say, for instance, uh, breaking from the unit? And um, I'm wondering if they did that, almost portraying I, it, say, I for instance. I, I think he, um, my mind is is uh, kind of vague on that. When he came back, he he, um, he wasn't disciplined from the standpoint of putting being put in a brig or something like that. That's not in my memory bank. Um, okay. Uh, but anyway, that that's that's portrayed in the film, the sinking of that ship. Thank goodness. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear that. So, so yeah. that's a positive, and I do want to again contextualize it by allowing the listenership to know that the Tuskegee Airmen flew 1,578 missions with 900 plus pilots. Now, think of what I'm saying. That's over a thousand African American men who were trained to fly as fighters for combat engagement. And yet when you hear about it, they're often portrayed as just like a few groups of 20 men each, basically a few squads. I don't know, I don't know if the film portrayed it that way, but the reality was they lost 82 men, 66 in combat. So that means that a few were lost to uh, landing accidents, uh, um, gas explosions, but these were very capable pilots who not only covered the U.S. bomber crews uh, in such a way that they earned the respect of both German and American uh, veterans after the war, but uh, also they were dying while fighting. And um, I didn't see the Lucas film. Hopefully, he, he portrayed that with the respect it deserves. I'm sure he probably did. Um, and. Uh, so there was also, of course, again, just to finalize the Red Ball Express, they do deserve much more tribute than I've been giving them. This was the transportation unit of all black truck drivers. Uh, they supplied the rapidly advancing U.S. forces while taking heavy casualties. They oftentimes drove behind German lines 
really right through German-held areas or combat zones to get the needed supplies to Patton's army to continue the war effort. So there are many uh, things. Let's go into uh, the significance of Patton and uh, whatever you might know about his utilization of black soldiers. I wish I knew more. Um, The problem was that uh, the particular records uh, in that area I did not access. Um, Keep in mind I was working with thousands and thousands of documents. I'm very fortunate to have taken the amount of notes that I did concerning very vital areas. Uh, The Patton uh, area, I think, um, is uh, probably quite important, but I just never was exposed to it. So the... Film for the audience. There is a film that I saw as a little boy, and it is the Red Ball Express, and it is available, I believe, on Netflix or Amazon. And the uh, the way you would track it down, in case you don't come up with the Red Ball Express, is that you look for Jeff Chandler. He is the the Caucasian star in the movie Jeff Chandler. You'll also find bits and pieces on YouTube of the Red Ball Express. And uh, they indeed, uh, Patton was moving through, he he was doing lightning um, attacks on the German line, he's just rolling through, and they had to, in order for him to keep going, he had to be supplied, and the Red Ball Express was one of the units they kept him supplied. And... um, a little bit of the movie, not not a little bit, but the movie does show some significance of what that that unit was about. Um, now, now, what if anything did you hear? And this would be after the fact, I guess, in terms of records of of Vietnam of blacks who disagreed or went into the bush. There, there's this legend about a black guy who went into the bush and they, they said he was hooked up with the Viet Cong. Did any of that information or stories come your way? Oh, absolutely. And uh, the um, African-American who served with the Viet Cong, I have heard about and I can attest to the fact that I'm certain it's true because there were some white Americans who did the same thing. And the way the African Americans were treated, I would, uh, I am simply, uh, the only thing I can say is that I'm shocked that entire units of African Americans didn't go over to the Viet Cong. But the point that I can make is that many of them did desert. And what would happen to these African Americans who deserted in theater, in country Vietnam, is that they would often establish themselves with the Saigon underworld and that demi-monde, or in French, because Indochina or uh, Vietnam used to be part of French Indochina or a uh, French colony. And as a result, much of the references that one gets from Vietnam War records are in French. So in terms of the African Americans who deserted, many of them would become part of the Saigon demi-monde or criminal half-world, as the French call it, or underworld, where they dominated um, basically the black market, which is an ironic term considering. But um, what happened was that these African American gangs were able to do that because the military police were, guess what, all white 
so they couldn't infiltrate them. <laughs> because they couldn't infiltrate them, they couldn't penetrate them and basically break these uh, black uh, uh, black market African American black markets uh, up. And and what they specialized in, of course, was uh, basically stealing uh, supplies from African American affiliates at U.S. military bases, fire bases, behind the lines, in the rear with the gear, and they would sell them to the Vietnamese people who needed them. Supplies such as clean, potable water, such as medical supplies. And that brings us back, of course, to Dr. Charles Drew. That lovely lady asked me about the difference between plasma and blood per se. And uh, plasma is the liquid that carries blood cells. So uh, blood, of course, is essentially a uh, broad definition for a medium when we cut ourselves and the fluid that we see spilling is not just blood cells but the medium which carries that and that medium is of course plasmatic and so what Dr. Charles Drew did was he invented a method to preserve that plasma so that it could be stored and shipped over long distances so everything that we do in blood drives where you donate blood is based on Dr. Charles Drew's uh, genius. Now, so now that, the, the spelling of the the uh, Saigon Underworld group, what, what's, how do you spell that? Oh, well, the French term is demi-mond, uh, D-E-M-I. Then there's usually a hyphen or a dash, and then mond, M-O-N-D-E. But um, the uh, oh, thing okay. that one would, yeah, the um, what one would be... Half world, world, that's right. That's what it would be, basically, they would call it half world. Or half human. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, they they weren't thinking in those terms, uh, but uh, definitely it's it's, it's one of those situations where when the Americans ultimately withdrew under Nixon from Vietnam, uh, then basically they gave uh, a full-scale pardon to all deserters. And many of these African Americans took advantage of that and emerged from literally, in some cases, out of the forest and uh, returned and uh, were brought back to the United States because they didn't want to spend the rest of their lives living in Vietnam. But many of them stayed. Many of them married Vietnamese women, and um, many of them stayed in underneath the new uh, communist regime. And it's important to remember that Herman Perry, the man who I described earlier who was executed by the United States Army, Herman Perry still has children by that 14-year-old chief's daughter that he married, grandchildren at this point, and great-grandchildren that live in Thailand and uh, Burma in the the hills with those headhunting tribes. So Herman Perry has left a legacy. And um, in terms of a tragedy regarding African Americans and their treatment. One book that I would recommend for all African Americans would be a book by Teresa Svoboda. Um, the her family name is spelled S V O B O D A. S as in Sarah, V as in Victor, O as in um, oxygen. <laughs> B is in body, O is in oxygen, D is in Douglas, and A is in Adam. Now, Svoboda wrote a book with a terrible title. The title is called Black Glasses Like Clark Kent, and the subtitle is A G.I.'s Secret from Postwar Japan. And no, no, uh, black, again. Black. Uh, black Glasses Like Clark Kent. And 
um, that's the title of the book. It's a stupid title, uh, but the it, the entire book is based on her uncle's experiences in martial law Japan, where when the Americans were in Japan helping with reconstruction, that uh, what happened was many African Americans were brought to Japan and the military killed them. And the point was that your uncle was involved with that as a military policeman. He was assigned to guard convicted fellow Americans, GIs gathered from all over the Pacific. And the captain called for a meeting for all the military policemen and said the prison was getting overcrowded, terribly overcrowded, and gave the order to start executing the prisoners, the ones in the death cells. So her uncle remained a silent witness to the unqualified punishment of African-American prisoners who were all taken and killed so that the white ones could live. And her... Black glasses, G-L-A-S-S-E-S? Yes, sir. Black glasses like Clark Kent. And that's because her her uncle wore the GI-issued black frame glasses is what she's referencing to. Um, at the age of 80, basically what happened was she said uh, he fell into a terrible depression with the news of Abu Ghraib when he heard of uh, the Bush Jr. administration's treatment of Arab prisoners of war in Abu Ghraib. He uh, began to have flashbacks that were so terrible that he killed himself. Wow. Brother Leroy, can I interrupt for one moment, please? Um, I'm sorry, there is a question in the chat box that someone wants to bring to Mr. Dietrich's attention. Um, Mr. Dietrich, excuse me for interrupting your flow, and you have a caller that's been holding for a while. The question from the chat box is, what are some of the social concerns with the use of blacks in the European front during World War II? Also, Red Ball Express, and Jeff Chandler. I'm going to mute out, and you have a caller that's holding on while you address that question from the chat box. Thank you, Brother Leroy. Okay. Thank you, sir. And I'll be certainly happy to uh, to tend with the caller uh, probably sooner rather than later because, to tell you the truth, I don't believe that there's too much that I can really donate or uh, to the phenomenon of the social aspects of the African-Americans in uh, the European theater of war, other than to uh, emphasize the fact that they were they tended to be noted as being far more disciplined and behaved and less prone, uh, if at all. Uh, indeed, I don't think that there are any military records that I've ever run across where African Americans were ever accused of rape, assault or any kind of uh, disturbance in Europe in World War II, such as all the Caucasians were. That was something that people noted in the Spanish-American War under Theodore Roosevelt. Now, if you ever look up Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders and that whole shameful period of American history uh, in the Spanish-American War in 1889, what had happened was that... uh, the army had become essentially blackified, and that was a term that I actually saw on documents. The majority of poor African Americans 
were um, had nothing to do after being freed as slaves from the Deep South because so many people wouldn't hire them, and their only option was really to join the army to provide their family with an income. And therefore, you had a very predominantly African-American army, and the whites refused to serve with them, even in the same army. So if you ever take a look at Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, or any similar units, his was not the only one, they will wear belt buckles and collar tabs that say USV if they're enlisted, and USGV if they're officers. Now, the USV stands for United States Volunteer. That means they weren't in the military. That means they were outside of the military chain of command. That means they were mercenaries like Blackwater. And if you take a look at Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, all the officers have USGV on their belt buckles and collar tabs. That means United States Gentleman Volunteer. That means that they were essentially very rich, spoiled white men who refused to serve in an army full of niggers, as they spoke of it, and they basically hired their own white thugs and mercenaries and started their own private armies. Now, these private armies ran roughshod in Cuba. They rampaged, and there were thousands of Americans, Caucasians, who lived in Cuba, who had bought property and resettled there, running plantations and estates in Cuba. And the American Rough Riders, not them specifically, not Theodore Roosevelt's unit to his credit, but many other United States volunteer or USV battalions rampaged and killed, raped, uh, burned down these estates, uh, killed uh, the, the people living in them, raped the woman, etc. They were notorious. And the African Americans were noted for their extreme discipline and for helping any survivors. Now, in terms of what happened at that time, the American government was faced with what do they do with all of these basically war criminals? Now, since they were all rich white men with a bunch of private mercenaries, the United States government not only said hands off, they were outside of the military chain of command and therefore could not be punished, but the United States government declared, made it a law, that any U.S. citizen who lives overseas and establishes residence overseas, if the United States goes to war with that nation, then that American is automatically an enemy alien and therefore can be killed, can be raped, can have their property burned to the ground and looted. And that law holds to this day. <laughs> to this day, if you as an American buy property overseas and establish yourself over there, if the United States goes to war with the country you're living in, then as far as the Americans are concerned, you lose your citizenship and you're an automatic enemy. So please remember that. That's so important. And as for the black units who served in the uh, Spanish-American War, especially in Cuba, what happened was uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his uh, Rough Riders, they served with our exploited, rather, the Black 25th Infantry. And uh, what happened was his Rough Riders were New Mexico Cowboys, Ivy League polo players, and they had their uniforms hand-tailored at Brooks Brothers. And they basically took this obscure unit, the Black 25th U.S. Infantry, 
which were veterans of the final campaign against the Sioux Indians in 1891 at Pine Ridge, and they deployed them against American citizens who were white who were striking miners in Montana a few years later. So this black 25th Infantry Unit basically was called in June 14, 1898, shipped out in the hold of a former cattle ship, the Concho. You can look this up, C-O-N-C-H-O. This was a animal transport. They shipped them in and basically sent them to Cuba. One of them was Sergeant Frank W. Pullen. His last name was P-U-L-L-E-N. He wrote about his experience with the 25th in Cuba. He uh, wrote about basically uh, as soon as the blacks landed, all of the Cubans dropped their guns and their machetes and reached out to shake the African-Americans' hands because they thought of them as fellow exploited colored peoples. And two days later, the entire expedition set out on a forced march uh, through the jungle towards Santiago with the Rough Riders in the lead. And that's where Sergeant Pullen was given the order that they had to attack El Caney. And basically El Caney was a hill defended by a blockhouse full of Spaniards. And unlike San Juan Hill, few have ever heard of the battle. It was fought on the same day. And early on the morning of July 1st, uh, the African Americans attacked and they were able to um, take the hill. And uh, basically, um, what happened was the Americans stole the flag that the African Americans took down from the blockhouse, which was a Spanish flag at the top of the blockhouse. The Africans captured it. The um, Caucasians, meaning the Rough Riders, and Teddy Roosevelt came, took the flag, and claimed that they had taken the hill. And they had a photograph taken of them, which excluded all blacks from the photograph. Mm-hmm. Ladies and, uh, and gentlemen, um, I, I think we have a. Uh, there, there was a. I think people were asking about Jeff Chandler. That's a, a film, Red Ball Express. I'm almost certain that's the name of the film, Red Ball Express, starring Jeff Chandler. If you went into Netflix and you didn't pick up Red Ball Express, then you go into Netflix and you pick up Jeff Chandler and look for the movies listed under him, and you'll pick up Red Ball Express. Uh, so you have to track that down. We have a call on the line. Thank you for your patience. You're on with Brother Douglas Dietrich, military historian. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah. I tell you, I've been really, really enjoying the show. A lot of really intelligent questions about military history. I know you're knowledgeable, but... Can we change gears and talk about military future for a second, sir? Military future? Military future. I mean, you know, I was thinking, I was going to ask you a question about George Lucas, but you went right over that whole Red Tails thing. You ever seen that Star Trek movie where Tyler Perry happens to be the boss of the whole universe? What do you think about that? Let's say we get to space. How much uh, How much command authority are they going to give the color folks? Well, uh, I'm, uh, that would take, like, again, another program to go into in terms of social speculations and trends. I believe that we're at a different phase of history now. We have to remember that the entire world is changing, and it's no longer a question of uh, how much authority or how much uh, rights can be granted to people of any color. At this point in history, we are entering a predominantly colored world. 
So the entire phenomena that we were facing up to this point is going to change drastically in terms of the social equation. Uh, uh, what you bring up is fascinating because all militaries are, of course, subunits, are basically reflections of their societies. And our entire world is changing right now where we are entering a new dark age. And our last dark age was going to be pretty much the example, past is prelude. And the precedent set by the last dark age was that there was no such thing as politics. A man's religion was his politics. Someone lived or died by either being a Christian or a Muslim. Now that is the kind of immediate future that we are entering. And if we develop special technologies that can be exploited, that social equation will simply carry itself out into the vacuum. But what Western commentators have recently done, again, in media, is turn reality upside down on its head because they constantly emphasize that Christianity is declining, that it needs to modernize its beliefs or risk being abandoned altogether. And what they ignore is the explosive southward expansion of Christianity into Africa, Asia, and Latin America, which has an enormous black population amongst the black diaspora, and it's not being emphasized at all in the media. Basically, Christianity is on the rise again, just as Islam is. And like Islam, it's in a very traditional and fundamentalist form. And to, to basically even comprehend this requires a new awareness of what's happening in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. By the year 2025, just a few years from now, only one Christian in five is going to be a non-Latino white person as the government classifies ethnicity in the United States. And the center of gravity of the Christian world is going to shift firmly to the southern hemisphere, literally within a decade and a half, Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila are going to replace Rome, Athens, Paris, London, and New York as the new focal points in the universality of Christendom. In Africa alone, the number of Christians has increased from 10 million in 1900 to 360 million in the year 2000. And these churches that have grown most rapidly in the global south are far more traditional, morally conservative, evangelical, apocalyptic than their northern counterparts. Um, they basically consist of a theology of mysticism, puritanism, belief in prophecy, faith healing, exorcism, dream visions. These are concepts which the liberal Western churches have traded in for progressive political and social concerns. So what we are entering is a world in which Islam and Christianity are going to be confronting each other in a worldwide religious war that is going to be fought with renewed intensity using high-tech weapons, uh, missiles, machine guns, far surpassing the swords and spears of the Middle Ages. That is the future that we're entering in terms of a colored universe and a colored military field of operations. And, and in terms of that last statement, the, the, that particular prospect, is that a manipulated situation? Or is that a um, 
evolutionary situation where you have two camps that have different views on the spirituality of man and mankind and coming into conflict uh, based on history. It's entirely organic. It would be the latter. It is based on the um, organic development of history, and uh, it's not manipulated. It, it simply has to do with the demographics. And the uh, reality is that at the height of the uh, Victorian Empire, when the British Empire controlled literally well over a billion people, with the subcontinent of India as its Raj, and they controlled 25% of the surface world's landmass and 25% of the oceans in terms of sea lane domination. At that point in time, before World War I and World War II, 45% of the world population was Caucasian. It had to be almost half of the world's population in order to assert that level of dominance. All of the colonial empires outside of Japan were Calcozoid empires are Europoid, American, British, Spanish, uh, Portuguese, etc. And uh, in terms of World Wars I and II, they basically killed themselves off in an orgy of fratricide. Of, and, and as a result, due to the enormous amount of autogenocide that took place in the former Soviet Union, uh, that took place on the battlefields of World Wars One and Two. Uh, what we have now is a predominantly colored world. Okay. Uh, in the very near future, uh, the face of Christianity is going to be a colored face. Right. Now, the question will be how Islam will develop, because that will be interesting, because blacks are still a minority in Islam. And their theology of Islam tends to be quite different from that which is held by Arabs or Persians or Turks. Uh, much of the uh, Islamic world would not consider itself colored, whereas much of the Christian world would. So right. that is part of the new dynamics of which we speak. And uh, that brings us back, of course, to conscientious objectors in World War II. The majority of African-American conscientious objectors were um, basically, most of them were influenced usually by Muslim movements. So that was a fascinating aspect of it. We had, for instance, the Wiley Report, which um, what happened was in the Wiley Report, the Office of War Information under Elmer H. Davis took those surveys that I spoke of using African-American interviewers who worked for the U.S. government. And uh, they basically admitted that the policy of the War Department put young African-American men from the north in southern communities and they even stated this was like placing extreme antagonists at each other's throat. Hello? Now, that is manipulated. That's manipulated. And uh, they Hello? think that the mood of a black soldier was reflected at best, perhaps, in an anecdote that was attributed to a black recruit at induction that I found in one of my military documents that he's quoted as saying, just carve on my tombstone, here lies a black man who died fighting a yellow man to protect a white man. And this manifested itself at places like June 1943, Camp Stewart in Georgia, 
the Wiley report was used uh, used this as an example of the profile of a typical outbreak. That's where soldiers of the 369th Anti-Aircraft Artillery Regiment, which was, of course, all black, originally from New York, had served in Hawaii, where they'd been well-treated by the natives and the non-belligerent Japanese. They were confronted by the social conventions of Georgia and the conditions of Camp Stewart. And understandably, they were shocked at the treatment they received. Uh, they, it raised the question of whether the Japanese would treat them better than white Georgians. And there were a number of riots and a platoon commander of the 92nd Division who had been involved in suppressing the disturbance told of rock-throwing black troops who yelled, Get out of here, you white son of a bitch. We get over, we're going to be shooting someone besides the Japs. That's an actual quote that was in the document that I'm referencing. So this is um, the kind of conditions under which blacks were serving. This secret document, by the way, was written for the Army. It was by historian Bell I. Wiley. Last name spelled W-I-L-E-Y. First name is Bell. Uh, he reported numerous complaints that black recruits were uninterested in military life and the war itself. Uh, basically estimated that approximately 95% of uh, the troops uh, lacked the desire to uh, fight the enemy and that this disinterest war rose, arose from a conviction that the war would do little or nothing to advance uh, their quality of life uh, because of the experience of World War I, where they had served with distinction. And um, after World War I, in the Herbert Hoover administration, I believe, uh, no, it wasn't Hoover. It was, um, God, I'm trying to remember who was president in the 1923, the year my mother was born. Uh, the president, Wilson? Uh, no, no, no. It was, it was right after Woodrow Wilson. So you can help me with this because my, my mind is going totally blank. Okay. And the reason, the reason that, that, that this is so important is because that president ordered the first bombing of any domestic city in the United States. And uh, that bombing was of, of course, a black part of uh, Indian mm -hmm. territory, as it was still called at the time, a black part of, what's that state above? Uh, you talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma? Thank you. I couldn't have gotten that out without you. <laughs> that was, yeah. That was yeah, that was uh, the entire incident started with a young African American entering an elevator and bumping into a white woman when he stumbled and fell. And this was a solid Klansman town. It was an oil boom town. And uh, what had happened was the whites all decided to respond with a respond with a traditional lynching. Uh, they entered the black neighborhood, which at that period of time was a comparatively Comparatively speaking, a very wealthy black neighborhood. This was an African-American neighborhood where people owned their own property, had their own firearms, and they confronted the white Klansmen uh, wearing their World War I uniforms and uh, out to protect themselves. And the white population of the city was so outraged.